Hi, I'm Rebecca. I'm Sarah. And I'm Allie, and you're listening to Desk Chair Detectives. Hello. Hello. Hi. Are you ready? I was born ready. I was not. (laughs) (laughs) This one is pretty well known, and I think you will know it. But I just feel like it's one of those cases that um, it's just, like, heartbreaking. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) Compared to all the other ones we do, which are really hearted. I know. (laughs) Well, I feel like the, the heist was a really good one last week. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, one guy died, but like I didn't have any emotional connections to him. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just in passing. He died yeah. in passing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so I do want to say before I start um, that this one's like pretty upsetting and that there's a lot of information um, and a lot of people involved. So I tried to simplify as best as I could. So I definitely let left out a lot of detail, but at the end, I'll tell you some like good sources to like read more if you're interested love love that okay more information i'm ready to take notes and i will say i'm not um trying to be what is it called like impartial i I have very strong opinions i was gonna say i was just gonna ask (laughs) i feel my inner rebecca is gonna Uh come out I hope Rebecca has the opposite opinion and then we get WWE Smackdown. If she does, I don't think we can do this podcast anymore. She probably doesn't. But <laughs> I'm ready to get fired up. Also, I'd like to say that I smell fire. So, um, oh no. Hopefully, I don't die. That's just okay. getting pumped. Yeah. Or my crock pot that I have going. <laughs> I'm going to go out of this is us style. Okay. oh no spoiler alert if you soon. haven't watched this us. <laughs> too soon okay so on april 19th 1989 trisha miley was a successful 28 year old woman working as an investment banker on wall street she was the youngest of three girls who were born in paramus new jersey but she actually but she was just born there she grew up outside of pittsburgh and then later boring (laughs) yeah canceled canceled (laughs) just kidding i'm not gonna speak ill just in case she's not around anymore you're gonna feel real bad about i know i am i I feel it i know i am (laughs) i don't know you got me fired up for like different reasons so no you'll feel bad Um, oh god (laughs) Um, so she attended college at Wes- Wesley College, a very well-known school. Um, she was a professor there, described her as brilliant, probably one of the top four or five students of the decade, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, wow. The decade? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, she went on to earn her MA and MBA in finance from Yale University. And in 1986, she began working as an associate and then a VP in the corporate finance department of Solomon Brothers on Wall Street. Her job was pretty stressful and demanding. So to cope with the stress, we had very different uh, methods of dealing with stress. Trisha turned to exercise, especially running. I just started doing that. (laughs) What? I I don't I don't recommend it, though. (laughs) Still unhappy. I feel like I don't know <laughs> and you. And sore. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so you're still unhappy, but now you're just sore. So, yeah. right. right. Sounds mm-hmm. like that backfired. <laughs> I think my method of eating donuts is a little better than it feeling bad. Definitely probably make you happier. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she turned to exercise, especially running. The day, um, that day of April 19th, she had worked a 12 hour day and had plans to hang out with a coworker later on in the evening, but decided that she would like to go for a run first. She was leaving the office around 9 PM and told her coworker who she had plans with that she'd be home around 10 and to come over around then when the coworker, he said that was fine. And he, he'd see her later. Um, and Trisha left and headed to central park for her daily run. When her coworker arrived at her apartment, Trisha was not there. And it would turn out that Trisha would not return home for a very long time. About mm. 
four hours after she left for her run, Trisha was found around 2 a.m. by two men. She was naked, gagged, tied up, and covered in mud and blood. It was clear that she had been dragged from the path for about 300 feet into a wooded area. A police officer was quoted as saying, she was beaten as badly as anybody I've ever seen beaten. She looked like she was tortured and she like really was. She was beaten so badly that she was in a coma for 12 days. She had been raped, was suffering from extreme hypothermia. She had severe brain damage. She lost about 75% of her blood. She had internal bleeding, several oh skull God. fractures. And this is this part is like really gross, but her left eye socket was fractured in 21 places, causing her eye to dislodge. And she was alive. And she was alive. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. When she, but like barely. When she arrived at the hospital, the staff wholeheartedly believed that she would die from her injuries. She was even um, given the last rites, which I'm sure you Catholic school girls know what yes. is. But I, I had to I had to Google it. So for any <laughs> any heathens out there, um, it's the last <laughs> prayers that you get like before you die. Um, so doctors were amazed when she woke up 12 days later. Um, she when she first woke up, she was unable to talk, read, or walk. Trisha would spend seven more weeks in the hospital before transferring to a long-term acute care center in Connecticut, where she would spend another six months in rehabilitation. And in July, she started walking again. And amazingly, eight months after her brutal attack, Trisha returned to work, although still having some like lingering disabilities, like her balance was off and um, she had some loss and like double vision. And due to the trauma, both physically and mentally, to this day, Trisha still has no memory of events that occurred that night. Oh, it's for the best. Yeah. It's not for the best. She said that, like, I think her last memory is around, like, 5 p.m. She had called to, like, cancel dinner plans with a friend because she knew she was going to have to work late. Uh, Little did Trisha know that her evening run would turn into one of the most publicized crimes of the 1980s. From this point on, Trisha would be known only as the Central Park Jogger. Yep. As soon as you said her name, I knew exactly what you were talking about. Yeah. I never heard this one, actually. Okay, good. You you have. You have. As I keep Um, going on, I think you might have. um, But I maybe don't. Yeah. It sounds familiar, but like even that, the title, I don't. It doesn't bring any I didn't either. know it really well. I had heard it in like passing or um, until uh, a couple of years, like two years ago, there was a Netflix show that came out about it. And I watched yeah. that and I was like, this can't be real. And I like looked into it and it has haunted my nightmares ever since. So unfortunately, Trisha was not the only person who had been attacked that night, although she definitely like endured the worst of it. Um, It was estimated that about 30 teenagers had been wilding, um, which the cops said it meant like beating people up and like robbing people. I thought of that show that was on MTV, Wild and Out. Wild and Out. No, Nick Cannon, to my knowledge, was not present. (laughs) Popped out of the cornfields. Yeah. (laughs) Nick Cannon completely just like took that word and reinvented it. Yeah. Yeah. At least seven other people, joggers, walkers, bikers, and two people on a tandem bike were attacked by the group. The cops arrived Mm. at the park at around 930 after receiving like a lot of different calls. And they went to the area where they had received a report from last and they were unable to find any teens. So they left the park and saw a large group of young predominantly black and Hispanic men walking down the street. They tried to detain the group, but everyone started to like run and like scatter, but they were able to detain five people from that group and they arrested them for unlawful assembly in that group included 14 year olds, Kevin Richardson and Raymond Santana. And this arrest occurred before police even knew about Trisha's attack. Cause she, wasn't found till like 1 30 or 2 in the morning um okay i'm stupid i definitely know what you're talking about yeah did you yeah. google it <laughs> yeah okay. I, well i like double check because i didn't want to i didn't want to interrupt you but yeah i 100 because i it's exactly that 
Rebecca, I like know it for other reasons, not yeah. for the actual crime itself. Yeah. Um, so these five were detained for hours before their parents eventually were called. Trisha was found early the next morning while the boys were still at the precinct. While the police working on the unlawful assembly arrest heard what happened to Trisha, they worked with district attorney Linda Fairstein, <coughs> the devil, and prosecutor <laughs> Elizabeth Letterer, still pretty bad, but not as bad, um, to quickly see if there was a link. Throughout the next few hours, the police interrogated Kevin and Raymond and many others. They collected a list of names that had been brought up in these interrogations. Wait, quick question. Did you mention yeah. the age, the ages of them? Or so was... the first two boys were 14. So sad. Yeah. Very young uh, boys. Yes. Little babies. Um, so they kind of collected a list of names of anyone who these five boys that they brought in remembered seeing that night. Mm-hmm. Two of the names on the list, 15-year-old Antron McRae and 15-year-old Yusuf Salam. Police went out to find the boys on this list and bring them in for questioning. When they found Yusuf, he was hanging out with his close friend, Corey Wise. The police acknowledged and told Corey that he was not on their list, but if he wanted to, he could come to the station and help out and hang out with his friend. And Corey and Yusuf, like they're really close. Their parents were friends. And um, Corey was kind of like, oh, my mom will kill me if I don't go be with Yusuf. So he ended up going. For support. Yes. Moral support. So this is where things start getting really confusing and insane. Most of the boys were minors. So police were supposed to wait for their parents to get there before starting any interrogations. Corey was 16, so legally the police could talk to him without a parent present. Wait, really? I thought you had to be an adult, no? I think um, at the age of 16 for them to talk to you. Oh, at least in 1980. I'm I'm not sure if it's different now. Oof, that's rough. Yeah. Yusef had a bus pass on him that claimed he was 16, but he told police that he was actually only 15 and he had lied on the bus pass so he could impress girls. Stop. Oh. I know. <laughs> they disregarded that information and interviewed him anyways. When his mother arrived, she questioned why they were interviewing her 15-year-old son without her. And they said that um, they would have, she would have to prove that he was 15. And they're like, do you have his um, birth certificate? Yeah, let me just pull it out of my purse because my son's birth certificate with me everywhere. And this is like New York City in the 80s. Like, I don't think it took five seconds to just like, I'm sure she had to take a bus and like, yeah, probably took forever. So before his mother could like put a stop to the interviewing, police claimed that Yusef made a verbal admission to the crime. He allegedly confessed to being present at the rape only after the detective falsely told him that fingerprints had been found on the victim's clothing and that if it matched his, he would be charged with the rape. Yusuf's mother, she was kind of like, she was really great. She was like, not on my watch, right? Um, She did not allow him to sign any of the written statements that the police um, prepared. And she did not allow him to record a video confession. Good. Uh, yep. Later, when at when Yusuf was asked, like, why he said that, like, why he told police that he was there, he said that he could hear them in the next room beating up Corey, and they would come and look at him and say, you realize you're next. And he said, the fear made me feel like I was not going to be able to make it out. So, yeah, the next person I'm going to talk about is Raymond. Raymond was questioned in the presence of his elderly grandmother, who did not speak English. His father did come to the um, precinct, but he had to go to work. So he had no choice but to like leave his, his mother there. Um, they had a detective who spoke Spanish translating, and she got really upset with these questions that they were asking her grandson. He was 15. Or I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Raymond was 14. 14. Ooh. So when she got upset, they escorted her out of the room, and the interviews continued without her. 
illegal. Right. So then Antron was questioned in the presence of his father and mother. At one point, both parents were becoming very upset with what the police were accusing their son of. And Antron's father, Bobby, asked to speak with someone outside of the room. It was then that the police officers made the implication that they knew Bobby had served time himself and asked if his employer was aware of that. And they said to make things easier and to end this sooner, it would be in his best interest to get his son to cooperate. So so when Bobby re-entered the room, he strongly suggested that his son tell the police what they wanted to hear. I have so many things to say but I don't want to get canceled (laughs) by saying them. We'll save it for the end because then I can just (laughs) crop it out. Okay. So Kevin, who a reminder, he was one of the two boys who was taken in the night before. So this is now the next day. And they've kept them the entire time. Yep. Yep. So Kevin and Raymond have been there overnight now. Um, We're sleeping. Yeah. They weren't able to sleep. They weren't fed. And it was stressed out. Yeah, they had no idea. Yeah, no idea what to do. So he was questioned without his mother or sister present. When police brought him in, he had gotten injured during their arrest. So he had a large cut on his head. When his 18-year-old sister arrived at the station, she did not want him to sign the written statement. Like Kevin was like a precious little angel. I think he played like he was in like jazz band or something like he liked music he was just like so sweet um so the sister her first gut was like you did not do this like i know you do not sign this but he was crying and begging her to let him sign it because he just wanted to go home so it just shows too like they think that if i sign this i'm gonna get to go home well that's That's what they're telling them they're they're basically they have no choice this yeah. when I was like doing a lot of the research and I watched a lot of the um the recorded confessions I use air quotes for confessions it reminded me a lot of like Brendan Dassey from making a murderer like 100%. he thought yeah. that if he just said yeah I killed her he was gonna go give his like sirens report or whatever it was mm-hmm. um so Corey, who I mentioned was 16 at the time, his parents were never present during his interrogations. And I think it's important to note that Corey had some hearing issues and was also struggling with learning disabilities. Police were very aggressive with him and many believe that they used him to tie up any loose ends in the other boys' stories. So they kind of had these four other boys who they got these confessions out of but there was a lot of gaps and inconsistencies so that's where Corey's story kind of sums it all up and like wraps them together but they probably like coerced him what to say so it would make sense they were literally like beating him um so after the off-camera interviews happened Four of the boys, Raymond, Antron, Kevin, and Corey, began to record their on-camera confessions, led by prosecutor Elizabeth Letterer. In these tapes, the boys all implicate each other and tell slightly different stories about what happened. Each boy maintains that they were never the one who actually committed the rape. They were just there when it happened. Corey's confession is key in the trial because he mentions a similar area to where Trisha was found, but it was different and way more specific than where the other boys had said it occurred. The boy, the other boys placed it a half a mile away from where Trisha was found. Cause that's like where they were in the park. Mm-hmm. So he first states that Kevin and Raymond jumped a woman He said he didn't see it, but he heard her screaming. An hour and a half later, right? Corey was the last one to be interviewed. An hour and a half later, they are recording Corey again. And the prosecutor states that Corey asked them if he could make an additional statement. He said, oh yeah, I have something else I would like to say. And now in his second interview, he changed he changed a lot of details and he now he's saying that he actually was with the others during the rape but he just watched 
Because he wanted to go home. They all wanted to leave. They are children. Yep. Yep. So by the end of April 20th, these boys would be formally arrested and become known as the Central Park Five. And also, shortly after their arrests, all five boys recanted their statements, and every single one of them reported that the police had promised that they could go home if they produced the confessions. I believe it. I believe it. So it's just like crazy to me. While all this was happening, Trisha was in the hospital fighting for her life, right? And like, they didn't wait to, I mean, part of me is like, okay, they took action. That's great. They were trying to find who did this to her. But like, they didn't know if she was going to remember it. They didn't know if she was going to like even survive. So, and yeah, it was just like, oh, we had these young black kids wreaking havoc. Maybe they did it. They look good for this. Yeah. 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 I don't know. And it's just like, like, I, I agree. Like they were proactive. They tried to like find the people quickly, but they also like pigeonhole themselves (laughs) to these five kids. Yep. And just wait, because there's something that I didn't really know that really made me so mad. Well, I'm so mad now. So I can't even imagine. I know. I know. So on April 27th and 28th, Antron, Kevin, Yusuf, Raymond, and Corey were indicted with an attempted murder and a couple other charges at the park and the attack on the attack and rape of the female jogger. They all pleaded not guilty. Kevin and Yusuf's family were able to um, make the $25,000 bail. So those two boys were able to go home until trial. Antron and Raymond, um, their families could not make bail. No. So they were held at a juvenile <laughs> facility until trial. Corey was 16. So he was sent to Rikers Island to await trial. Fuck and- that. <laughs> Fuck yes. that. Yep. Rikers Island has a reputation for violence and both abuse and neglect of inmates. It has been ranked as one of the 10 worst correctional facilities in the United States. Oh. And in two- 2015 alone, there were over 9,424 reported assaults. I'm super sorry. So let's send this boy 16. with learning disabilities. He wasn't even on their list of suspects. He was just trying to be there for his friend. Wait, did Corey get bail at all? No. Uh, he, he did, but his family but couldn't he, afford he it. Couldn't it. He, uh, he, had, he came from like a single family home single parent family home was that like a thing in the 80s that like kids at 16 years old were allowed to be treated like adults i think so damn scary um so normally when children are arrested their names are withheld from the news but this was not the case these names of these five boys were released to the press before any of them had even been formally arraigned or indicted Their names, photos, and addresses were all published in newspapers, resulting in their families receiving serious death threats. This case stirred up a lot of racial turmoil, being that all five boys were Black or Latino. A well-known reverend in the area said to the New York Times, the first thing you do in the United States of America when a white woman is raped is round up a bunch of Black youths, and I think that's what happened here. So times have changed. Um, speaking, speaking of that, you guys are going to be really shocked by this part. Um, but Donald Trump inserted himself into the situation and put a full page ad in all of the four, all four of the city's major newspapers calling for the death penalty. I think I need to like pace around for a second. <laughs> right? Like just why? And just wait, because this is what the ad said. I wish I was surprised, honestly. Right? No, I'm not. He said in the ad that he wants criminals of all ages to be afraid. Um, a little fun fact for you. This ad cost him $85,000 of his own money. Oh. And um, I did the inflation calculator. And that would be just under $200,000 today that oh my he God. felt the need to spend. Um, Pocket change. Pocket right? change. Right. So I stole bubble gum when I was like four on accident because I thought it was free. I'm telling Trump. <laughs> so many people. He's not president. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> next the next term he's coming back. So many people called Trump a fire starter in this case. As con- what? I know a fire starter. Right. Comprende. Ooh. 
as common citizens were being manipulated by him and swayed into believing that these kids were guilty before their trials. Sounds Wow, it doesn't sound like him at right? all. Oh. So out of character. <laughs> right? Anyways. When it came time for the trial, the original plan was to try them all together. This is where I feel kind of smart because I did some serious research about like technical terms. So I'm here to educate y'all. I need an education. Let's go. Give me a learning. The biggest thing that these prosecutors had were those confession tapes. But these tapes also caused some serious issues for the prosecutor because of this thing called the Bruton Rule. Have you ever heard of that? No. Okay. Neither have I until last night. Um, (laughs) It pretty much means that like, okay, if they were going to play these tapes in court, they would have to redact any time one of the other boys implicates each other. Because what the Bratton rule does is it protects a defendant's right to cross-examine anyone who says they're guilty. Like any witness who says, yeah, I saw him do this. You as a defendant have the right to cross or your lawyers have the right to cross-examine that person. Right. Mm-hmm. But you also have a right as this, as a defendant, not to take the stand. Right. So. Um, if they were all tried together and one of the boys made a statement that implicated one of the other boys, it couldn't be used. Yeah. There was this thing called the, it was like a confrontation issue because the first boy who implicated the other may choose not to take the witness stand. And then the second boy wouldn't have his right to cross-examine that person. Okay. So as a loophole, they decided to have two separate trials based on these tapes. They had to, I just picture them that like gif with like the triangles Charlie floating. Yeah. And like Charlie yeah. day from it's always sunny. We'll yeah. see these three together and th- these two together. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. They had to find this like perfect combination based on the tapes of who implicated who. And it was like, how fucking mess. sneaky. Right. So mm-hmm. the first mm-hmm. trial was Antron, Yusef and Raymond. They were all tried together in August of 1990. But each boy did have their own defense counsel. And I will say that none of them were like murder cases or like, or like high profile lawyers. Like one was yeah. a divo- divorce lawyer. I was going to say, did they, were they public defenders or no. did they like hire somebody? Okay. No, they weren't public defenders, but they were people who either like volunteered to do it. Yeah. Um, but, or someone that they could afford. It wasn't like there's a part in one of the movies where they say that like like, why are these people their lawyers like it's a like someone was a divorce lawyer but like they kind of use it as like an opportunity for themselves like because it's a high profile case they want to do a high profile case yeah so at this selfish yes right like these are little kids go on let's get them (laughs) someone good um, I will say, though, that Joshua Jackson from Dawson's Creek played one of the lawyers in one of the movies. So I was rooting <laughs> for him. Um, Trisha actually testified it at this trial, but her identity was not given to the court. Um, uh, but no, none of the defense attorneys actually cross-examined her. And she was just kind of there to like speak to what happened to her. And she yeah. never claimed that she knew what happened or she couldn't identify anyone. But it was kind of, they use it as like, to pull it like the heartstrings, heartstrings of the jury. Yeah, did she just kind of explain like her process of healing and like how yeah. much damage it had to her life? Oh, yeah, poor girl. Yeah. So after 10 days of deliberation, each of the boys were acquitted of attempted murder, but all were convicted of assault and rape of the female jogger. And they were sentenced to the maximum allowed for juveniles, which was five to 10 years in a youth correctional facility. Just those three. Just those three. Okay. So the next trial was on October 22nd, and that was for Kevin and Corey. And that lasted for almost two months. <sighs> At the beginning, the district attorney and lead prosecutor, Elizabeth Letterer, (laughs) had a lengthy opening statement in which Corey broke down at the defense table. 
he was crying and yelling that she was lying. Oh. He, yeah. He was removed temporarily from the court. And Kevin's defense counsel made a motion that it should be a mistrial because of the potential effects that this his outburst could have had on the jury. Um, but the judge rejected it and the trial proceeded. Because obviously it's like, it doesn't look good for Kevin now that Corey's having like a fit and yeah. they're being tried together. So it's just yeah. a hot mess. Um, so one really sad thing too, I just like Corey is a precious little baby, but um, during the trial, the prosecutor was interviewing Corey and was pretty much like, well, the police made you do this in the confession tape. Like, did you not say this in your written statement? And he's like, is that what it says I said? Because like he didn't know, he didn't write. Remember. He didn't write or remember. Yeah. And oh, she's like, right. And she's like, is this not your signature? Like, read what you said. And he gets really upset and he's like, I can't read very well. And she just kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him. He like had a fit and like it was just like so sad. I'm gonna cry. Yeah. Um so Kevin was convicted of attempted murder of Trisha. What? In addition to sodomy and assault. And he was sentenced to five to ten years in a juvenile facility. Oh. Corey was convicted of lesser charges of sexual abuse, assault, and riot in the attack on the female jogger. But because of his age and the violent nature of the felony, he was tried and sentenced as an adult, receiving five to 15 years in adult prison. Nope. That is absolute bullshit. And if you didn't love Corey already, after the verdict, Corey shouted at the prosecutor, you're going to pay for this. Jesus is going to get you. You made this up. So all these boys are shipped off to prison or juvenile. I wonder how prosecutors, I wonder how prosecutors who lie live with themselves. So I do, I do think about that. And they do kind of touch upon this in one in the Netflix series um, because it was definitely the first woman, Linda, um, sorry, let me make sure I get her, Fairstein. She was the one who kind of, orchestrated putting these events together Mm -hmm. and there were things that she changed in her like initial reports to like at first she was at first it was reported that um trisha was attacked closer to 10 p.m but that doesn't fit with their timeline because kevin and raymond were already at the precinct by 10 p.m so how are you going to rape someone in the woods when you're at jail in a cell so there's like little things like that and they there was pushback from um elizabeth letterer she was like this doesn't make sense and um something i did skip i forgot about this i missed this bullet but i will say she says that they have like a sock with one of the boys dna's in it that they like found at the crime uh, something there's dna on something right yeah she's like, it's from that. the boys it's from the boys so this prosecutor she keeps saying like in these documentaries and stuff like i'm the one who has to prove this in court like you need to give me solid evidence there was a couple times where she's like what are we doing that's why i said she's bad but not that bad um but the and linda was like pushing her and it came out in the first trial. I can't believe I f- completely missed this. But the DNA collected at the crime scene did not match any of the yeah. five boys. Okay, like, I was going to ask you that. I every- was like, was there anything? I know it was yeah. early for DNA, I could think. But yeah. literally, yeah, every single thing so far has been circumstantial. Yes. Like, every single thing. And, and they admitted they were confession. at the park. Yeah, they admitted that they, they were at the park. Um, but Do you they know how were- big Central Park is? Yeah, right. it's yeah. huge. And they even said the area that they were was a half a mile away from where this woman was running. So it's just ridiculous. And I think they kind of say like, they felt a lot of pressure because this was so publicized and because Trisha was so badly beaten and like what happened to her was terrible. 
and they like I think for themselves wanted to feel like they were helping her yeah but in reality they just like created so many more victims yeah and took away from Trisha I think you know she was able to go to bed at night saying okay the people who did this to me are still out there well like at first like so she she, i mean who is she she's going to take the word of these prosecutors and the judges right she probably feels relief they're out they got what they had coming to them and i can sleep at night but like so she was like robbed of that like false sense of security i guess or of the closure at all yeah yeah and she's an awesome person i'm going to keep talking about her later Mm -hmm. um but so the trials are over they get sentence right Youssef served six years and eight months in a juvenile detention center and he was released on parole in 1996 Raymond served six years and eight months in a juvenile detention center and was released on parole in 1996 as well he struggled a lot with life outside of jail and found it difficult to find employment that would pay him enough Um, and he ended up violating his parole and was sentenced to three and a half to seven years in prison on drug charges which is i forget what his actual like offense was but it's when you the first time you're arrested for that it's a lesser charge but now this because this is his second offense right he's a felon he got automatically a higher sentence Kevin served seven years in juvenile detention center and was released on parole in 1997. Antron served six years and was out on parole in 1996. And Corey served 13 years and eight months in multiple state prisons, including Rikers Island, Attica, Wendy State Penitentiary, and Auburn State Correctional Facility. So if the story wasn't crazy enough... (laughs) I'd just like you to buckle up because while Corey was serving his time at the Auburn State Correctional Facility, he met another inmate named Mateus Reyes. Little did Corey know that he just came face to face with the man who would soon confess to the April 19th assault and rape on Trisha Miley. Of course. Of course. Right? Reyes was a convicted serial rapist and murderer who confessed to a corrections officer shortly after meeting Corey. He was 17 years old at the time of the attack and had actually raped another woman in the same area two days earlier. Oh my God. This Why woman. Why would not look at that? <laughs> right? So this woman was able to provide police with a description and she said that he had stitches on his chin. So they actually went to a hospital and was like, hey, anyone match the description who got stitches on their chin? And they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, this dude, Mateus. And they never followed up. Aren't they, they just, like so good at their jobs? It literally just makes me right? so happy that we have competent police officers. They never followed up on that lead. Um, and then also when Trisha was found, they treated her case as a homicide because no one thought she was going to survive. But she did. She did. So it wasn't even like the same unit of people, right? Like one was being treated as a rape. One was being treated as a murder. So they never put the two and two together and they never, and they had DNA from both cases and never linked them. Oh my God. It was literally right in front of them. Right. That, in front the of fact them. that they had, <laughs> the fact that they had DNA, like I get it when you don't have DNA, it's so yeah. hard, but yeah. they had it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So in June of 1989, he was arrested and charged for five other attacks that occurred all after Trisha, all within three months of Trisha's attack. Three months? Three months. He actually, like, he's the worst person I think I ever read about. He, like, so obviously (laughs) he was a serial rapist. He broke into a woman's apartment, a mother of three. And killed her in the room, a room over from her children. And her children heard this happening. No. And then after that, he went to, this is how he was caught. He broke into like a fancy apartment and Mm -hmm. um, the doorman uh, intervened, like heard something and actually caught him. And that's how he was arrested. Good for you, Mr. Doorman. Yep. So 
In 2002, DNA confirmed that Mateus was indeed the one who attacked Trisha that night. It was determined that he acted alone. Um, also amazing, his confession occurred after, after the statute of limitations had run out. So um, also the Central Five, the Central Park Five had already served their sentences. <laughs> oh my God. So he claimed he came forward after meeting Corey because it was the right thing to do. Shut the fuck up. I mean, it was the right thing to do. 13 years ago yeah he like, like met they, the real people that like suffer for his yeah crime and he was like wow maybe i should actually like this person maybe i should help him out like he saw <sighs> he saw all this going on in the news and at that point in june right their trial wasn't until august so in june you're already arrested and in jail like just say oh yeah i also did this those kids are innocent you're already done right. for life, right? He got yeah. he got like three life sentences or something, or he was like doing life in jail. You're not getting out. You're oh, a monster. Oh my god. So it's literally, I hate him. <laughs> so after an investigation into the defendant's innocence was concluded or conducted in 2002, um, the city withdrew all charges against the men, and the defendant's sentences were vacated. In 2003, the five men sued the city of New York for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress. They reached a $41 million settlement with the city government in 2013 and received an additional $3.9 million in monetary compensation from the state in 2016. They deserve way more than that. Yeah. Because also, yes, $40 million is a lot of money, taxes, all that stuff. And you're splitting it five ways. 40 million each. Yes, Done. that's, what, that's yeah. what they need. I'm sure they would have rather not have gone through it at all and Seriously, wanted yeah. their lives back. So, well, what happened to these boys was terrible. The most innocent person of this night was Trisha. Right. And she actually remained anonymous until 2003. Her name was never revealed to the media. But in 2003, she published a book called I Am the Central Park Jogger, a story of hope and possibility. She has tried to make the most of her experiences and trauma and has tried to turn it into some good. She is now an author and motivational speaker. She also works with sexual assault, brain injury, and other trauma survivors at the Mount Mount Sinai Hospital and Gaylord Hospital, where she herself was treated. Aww. And something really crazy to me, like I got chills just like knowing I'm about to say this. So, right, she writes this book. She has no idea that any of this, like, how long does it take to write a book? A long time. Mateus hasn't even met Corey yet, right? So she's writing this book, finally ready to tell her story. She gave her first interview to Oprah in 2002, and the five weren't even proven innocent until December of that year. Oh, my God. Did she ever say what? Like if she believed that they were guilty or innocent. She had always, I think she stayed pretty neutral through the whole thing. She was like, I can't tell you who did it to me. Yeah. All I know is that this, this is what happened to me, right. you know, and her life was forever changed. Um, yeah. I feel like that's all you can do. Like, obviously I've never been in that situation, but like when you yeah. go through something as traumatizing as that, and these people are like right in front of you. And like, you're like, you said this before, Sarah, like we have, we're, like wired to trust our judicial system yeah. and trust these these people and that's not her job yeah yeah it's not her job to make sure the right person is it's her job to survive and try to do the best she can afterwards mm-hmm. and it just stinks that these people really just took so much away from her and these kids it just failed everybody the system just failed yeah like these kids what's 14 plus 6 20 right <laughs> 14 plus this 6 is, a, is 20, yes. 20. Correct. This, 20. These kids were like 20, 21, 22, whatever, getting out of jail and now having to register as sex offenders. The one guy, I think it was Yusef, he wanted to be a teacher. And oh. like, oh. he like someone had to tell him like, he you can't. can't. So it's just like so sad. Um, so as for the Central Park Five, Kevin now 46, lives in New Jersey hey. <laughs> with his wife, two daughters, and two daughters. 
He works as an advocate for criminal justice reform and continues to speak out about his experiences. Antron, now 47, leads a relatively quiet life today in Georgia, where he lives with his wife and six children. Oh, my God. I can't even imagine one. I know. Raymond, now 46, started his own clothing company, lives in Georgia as well, with his teenage daughter, and was recently married to Flavor of Love Star Delicious. Oh, give us the link for the clothes. I was just going to say, drop that link. (laughs) Um, Yusef, now 47, is a father to 10 children. He lives in Georgia with his family. He is a published poet, public speaker, and advocate for criminal justice reform. Yusuf has also received various awards for his work, including a Lifetime Achievement Award from former President Barack Obama. Wow. Making moves, right? Um, And Corey, now 48, continued to live in New York City. He works as a public speaker and criminal justice reform advocate. In 2015, he donated $190,000 to the University of Colorado's chapter of the Innocence Project, which then changed its name to the Corey Wise Innocence Project at Colorado Law in his honor. Wow. In t- this part gives me chills too. In 2019, he purchased a condo overlooking Central Park. He is the only one of the five who chose to continue to live in New York City after their release. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, Corey helped provide sustenance to senior residents in Harlem. Oh, what an angel. Right? And I did read, I looked what happened to this Lisa and Elizabeth. This Lisa. <laughs> or Sorry, this Linda and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Elizabeth ladies. And um, they were never like, charged with anything the cops were never they did an investigation into the investigative work and they said based on their findings it was easy to suspect that these boys were guilty so there was nothing about like any of them never got anything but um you know linda did lose a lot of job opportunities and um she was fired from a lot of legal consulting and uh Elizabeth was a te- was like teaching at like Columbia or something, and she was asked not to come back. So you know this really affected them too. Good. I hate them clearly as much yeah. as it affected the other ones, but <laughs> yeah, so, they're in so much turmoil. It's ridiculous. Yeah, they're millions of dollars, and you know all the stuff they can choke. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so there are a lot of really good movies and documentaries about this. If you just type in Central Park Five, you'll find a lot of stuff. But I really suggest the Netflix four-part series when they see us. That was really good. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, I think so I good. That too. And um, this is a public service announcement for anyone who does not watch it. Don't ever talk to me again. Thank you and goodbye. On God. Yeah, <laughs> it's so good. Um, but it just really like shows. I don't know. It just like makes you realize like how young these boys were and like. And then also I can like post a link to the um, confession tapes, but they're so so awkward. Yeah. So sad. All I want to do is go home. Right. And this is really messed up too. I didn't even think about this, but like they were just so shady, these like investigators and stuff. The, after they were released, right. Obviously everyone wants their five seconds of fame. The cameraman man who filmed the interviews came forward and said that he was asked to set up. Usually, you know, you'd stand up against a white wall, have some lighting, whatever. They made him set up in a janitor's closet. So it looked like gross and like dark so that these boys looked older and like grungy and like scary. Right. They also Mm -hmm. said, do not turn the lights off in between filming. And the guy was like, it's going to get so hot in here. And they're like, yeah, exactly. yeah they do that on purpose for a lot of like questioning like they make the room so uncomfortable like as worse as possibly can be it's like inhumane it's just these are 14 to 15 year old boys like they haven't slept they haven't eaten you're telling them that they've done these terrible terrible things that they've never even heard of they don't even know what 
half of it is yeah it means yeah like so I'm not gonna like say the stuff that they like made them say but like it's like when a little kid curses that's almost like the feelings like how do you like right. it's just so bad right yeah. yeah so that's a terrible story of the of Trisha um Miley and the Central Park Five but you know what it is like it's so uh brings a lot of hope that they're all all five of them are doing so freaking well now like not yeah. one of them let this affect the rest of their lives like they're yeah. all doing yeah so much better yeah yeah and um proud of trisha too like that she yeah. didn't let this affect her either and she turned yeah. her traumatic experience into something that she can help other people with uh also after like right after she recovered or like when she started to get her like walking back she joined a running group for disabled runners and was like i'm gonna keep living my life and i'm not gonna let them take this from me that's so powerful right she loved running and i mean i can't relate to that but that was really good sarah yeah thank you that's a sad sad case you did a really good job telling them thank you do you have any idea what you're gonna do next Yes, I picked already. <gasps> are you doing a murder or are you not doing a murder like me and Sarah? I I am doing a murder. Um, and um yeah. Give it's us not. a hint. Um no. <laughs> do you want me I'll tell you what state it's from? Do you want me to just do that? Okay, okay. Tennessee. Yeehaw, baby. Yeah, Sorry. that's all. That's all I'm gonna give you. Not me googling crime. I know. I was literally just gonna say you're googling. <laughs> you're just gonna have to wait. Sources for this episode include Colorado.edu, Oprah.com, TheCinemaholic.com, Refinery29.com, New York Times, Central Park Five, JoggerTax.com, and GoodHousekeeping.com. Desk chair.